Brady, play action. Looking. Third option. End zone. Caught. Gronkowski again. Yes, some truly amazing moments from 45 seasons of Tampa Bay Buccaneer football. And with all the current focus, and quite rightly too, on Tom Brady and the defending Super Bowl champions who reside in Area Code 813, there's just so much history surrounding the franchise that Buck fans around the world would love to hear about. Welcome to the first BuckPower.com podcast. My name is Paul Stewart, unofficial team historian, resident here in England. And for the past 20 years, I've been editing BuckPower.com, the website dedicated to the history of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Every player, every game, everything Bucks. This podcast will take you back to a memorable game from franchise history and relive everything that was happening before, during and after that encounter. Now, it would be all too easy to simply peak the Super Bowl victories and start there, but those were already firmly entrenched in the memories of all Buccaneer fans. What we're going to do here is focus on some of those really pivotal games from the 45 seasons and tell you the stories behind them. With the assistance of former players and other special guests, we're going to take you back in time, albeit without the assistance of Doc Emmett Brown, Martin McFly and a DeLorean with a flux capacitor. For our first episode, we are going back to the 23rd of September 1979, a game at Tampa Stadium against the Los Angeles Rams. This was the day that the Bucks truly became a legitimate force in the NFL and moved to 4-0 on that season. Sports Illustrated even put the Bucks on the next cover with the immortal headline, Unbeaten, Untied, Unbelievable. And Williams going for the end zone, he's got Giles! It was Leroy Selman who sacked him as he ran over John Williams. Touchdown! Well, joining me now to reminisce about this game is a real expert on the 1979 Buccaneers. He is Dr. Dennis Crawford, a historian and freelance writer from Youngstown, Ohio. He has written three books dealing with football in the Bay Area, including McKay's Men, a history of the first Bucks team to reach the playoff. Dennis, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Sir Paul. So, why are you a Bucks fan? Uh, lack of options, actually. Uh, as a child, I, I was talking to you, you know, before we started recording that um, I actually, when I started to watch football, I was a Dallas Cowboys fan, as so many uh, children of my age were in the 1970s because uh, Captain America, Roger Staubach, played for them. And so I didn't really become a Buccaneer fan until about 1983-84 when my dad started to take me to games and actually he started taking me 
first to Tampa Bay Bandit games of the United States Football League, and so that was my first introduction to Tampa Stadium. And, um, and then as I got a little bit older, I realized it was a big deal to have a pro football team in town, and so I started to get into the Bucks um, in 84, 85, 86, which was a really dark time uh, to become a fan, but once, once I became hooked, I was hooked for life. Uh, and here we are almost 40 years later, still living and dying every weekend to see how the Bucks did. Well, that's it. my own uh, support began in 1982 because, as many people know, the first game I ever saw on British television was Tampa Bay beating Miami. And I watched the highlights and thought, wow, that team in Orange must be pretty good. I'm going to support them. <laughs> and they then had 14 straight losing seasons, something which Doug Williams, when found out about, decided it was no longer the curse of Doug Williams. It was the curse of Paul Stewart. Yeah, I was just about to say, maybe maybe it's us. So why such an affinity with the 1979 Bucks that led to your book? Well, um, I, w- I was eight years old in 1979. So once again, I didn't have a great uh, comprehension for football and what was going on. And so when I became a fan in those dark, dark days of the 80s, it, it, it amazed me that at one time the Buccaneers were actually good. Um, and were the toast of the NFL for a couple of years. And it would strike me as curious, but then we get to, you know, then we're getting to 89 and 90 and 91 and 92, and the double-digit losing seasons are continuing to pile up, and it's just driving me crazy. And then Tony Dungy comes in, and within two years, the Buccaneers are... Uh, the talk of the NFL again, and ironically, in '97 they start five and zero, which is exactly what the '79 Bucks did, and that's when it started to click for me. Is I want to know more about the '79 team because that was the first. As much as we appreciate what Dungey did for the Buccaneers in the '90s, I just needed to know who who were these guys because it was like this blip, this radar blip. It was like an unidentified flying object. It was nothing, and then all of a sudden they're an elite team, and then it's back to blankness again for a decade and a half. And uh, what I realized is there was a lot of amazing athletes. There was a really good collection of football talent in Tampa at that time. And some people look at it as a fluke, but I, I don't think it was a fluke. I think if the Buccaneer management had done a more thorough job of um, paying the going rate for players, that, that team could have competed for quite a while. Uh, so there's also that little tragic element of what might have been. Um, and as a, an academic, but also a guy who likes a good televised movie, um, that tragic element really sunk it in. So I, I wanted to write a history of not just that one season, but the, oh, how close we were uh, to being a contender for years. So let's go back to September 1979. This is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. Jimmy Carter was still president. Margaret Thatcher had just become Prime Minister here in the UK. In the cinemas, the top two films were Apocalypse Now and The Amateurville Horror, although you could still see Moonraker, one of Roger Moore's less terrible Bond films. Top of the album charts were Led Zeppelin with In Through the Outdoor. Now we were still two years away from MTV, but number one in the uh, Billboard charts was My Sharona by The Knack, a song that ended up the biggest selling single of the year. 
Over here in the UK, number one was Gary Newman with Cars. On television, male hearts were breaking everywhere. Yes, Wonder Woman with Linda Carter had just been cancelled, leaving the staples of MASH, Dallas and the Dukes of Hazzard to dominate the ratings. So Dennis, where were you in September 1979? Uh, well, I must say on advice of legal counsel, I have been told it is my best interest to not disclose that information. No, uh, I, was, uh, I was eight years old and at Walsingham Elementary School, probably doing my best to just get through a day. <laughs> I did not become a stellar student until very late in life. Well, it's so, better than I was because I was still watching um, non-league soccer. I'm a team called Leatherhead Football Club. We're about four yeah. levels below what's now the Premier League. And I was just starting to write reports for the team programme and a couple of years away from my first articles appearing in the local press. And as I said, three years away from even seeing my first NFL game. So we were both about as far away from Tampa Stadium yeah. as you could be at that time. Yeah, other, other than watching Rowdy's games. I, you know, that was actually my first sports love was Tampa Bay Rowdy's soccer. Because um, they did a great job of marketing to kids. So that, that was probably the sporting interest I had more in 79 than anything else. The 1979 Bucks had opened the season with a 31-16 victory at home against the Lions on a Saturday night before coming back from a 17-0 deficit to beat the Baltimore Colts in overtime. A second straight road victory then followed in Green Bay, putting the Bucks at 3-0 on the season. Dennis, just how big a surprise was it for the Bucks to be undefeated? Um, at that time, it was, a, it was a relatively big surprise. The, uh, the preseason magazines had the Buccaneers pegged to finish fourth uh, in what was a very weak NFC Central. The year before, the Vikings won the division, but with a record of 8-7-1. and one. Um, And a lot of people thought it would be Detroit's year. But then Gary Danielson went down with a season-ending injury in preseason. Um, the research I did this week to just bring myself back up, the consensus was that the Bucks had a wonderful defense, but a bottom-of-the-barrel Offense being led by a second-year quarterback out of a small school who was coming off of an injury. Uh, so that had stunted his development. Um, but then in hindsight, we look and we see that Detroit had to play a backup quarterback. Burt Jones was injured, so Baltimore played a backup quarterback. And you and I both remember Lynn Dickey was always hurt. And so Green Bay had to play a backup quarterback. And so there was this wonder that the Buccaneers were undefeated, but a lot of cynicism about them being undefeated. So um, we were all excited, but that also explains why possibly this was not a nationally televised game, is because CBS didn't really believe in the Buccaneers. Although Sports Illustrated did send a reporter down to cover it, which I know we'll get to later with the, the Sports Illustrated cover. So, calling this game for CBS were Vince Scully and George Allen, a somewhat LA-biased crew. Scully, of course, called the LA Dodgers for an incredible 67 seasons, and Allen was twice the head coach of the Rams. He was also the father of future Bucks GM Bruce Allen. So what was the story about this 4pm 4 4 coverage, Dennis? Well, the, um, I looked it up online. The National 
national game for that day, CBS had the doubleheader, and the national game was the Giants against the Philadelphia Eagles. That's the one that uh, Pat Summerall and Tom Brookshire did. So it was regional. Um, and it was interesting that at the same time, the Bears were playing at the Orange Bowl against the Miami Dolphins at 4 o'clock. And so because that game did not sell out, the Bucks rams game is also being shown in Miami. So the entire state of Florida and only parts of the West Coast are getting the game. And the reason why it was a 4 o'clock kickoff is because that was Hugh Culverhouse. Um, during the very first season of the Buccaneers, their home opener was a 1 o'clock kickoff against the San Diego Chargers where it was high 80s with high humidity, and a lot of the fans complained about it. So Culverhouse petitioned the NFL to allow them to either play on Saturday nights or late on Sunday once the temperature had had a chance to break. And so that's why we see in 77, 78, 79, 80, 81, uh, all of those seasons, there's at least one home Saturday night game at the beginning of the season. And the Bucks don't play a 1 o'clock home opener until uh, 1983, I believe, against Detroit, that famous Jerry Goldstein debut. Um, I mean, I was the... My first Bucks regular season game in person was uh, not until 1986 when we saw uh, Steve DeBerg throw seven interceptions. That was my introduction. But that was a 90, I think it was like 93 degrees at kickoff and a one o'clock game. And it was, a, it was a miserable experience on multiple levels. From Tampa, Florida, CBS Sports presents the Los Angeles Rams versus the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Hi, everybody. I'm Vin Scully, along with George Allen, and welcome to Sultry Tampa. So the Buccaneers starting offense. On the offensive line, Dave Revis, Greg Horton, Steve Wilson, Greg Roberts, and Charlie Hanna. Isaac Hagins and Morris Owens are the receivers. Jimmy Giles, the tight end. Jerry Eckwood and Ricky Bell lined up in the backfield behind Doug Williams. On defence, the Bucks played a 3-4. Wally Chambers, Bill Collar and someone called Leroy Selman. The linebackers were the strength of the defence. David Lewis, Dewey Selman, Richard Batman Wood and Cecil Johnson. Jerris White and Mike Washington were the corners. Mark Courtney and Cedric Brown the safeties. We've got three members of the Ring of Honour there in Jimmy Giles, Doug Williams and Leroy Selman. So Dennis, how was that 1979 team really put together? Well, it was a very diverse uh, from player acquisition thinking. You had uh, draft high draft choices, low draft choices, waiver wire acquisitions, expansion draft acquisitions, uh, players who were looking to prove that they could stick it out in the NFL and old veterans who were trying to prove that their teams gave up on them too soon. Um, just Going back to 76, John McKay took a lot of crap for building his team slowly and not bringing in a lot of veterans. When the Seattle Seahawks win two games in 76 and have a winning record in 1978, people are just yelling about, oh, McKay, McKay, McKay did this bad job. 
Uh, I think McKay and also Hall of Fame executive Ron Wolf did an amazing job in stocking this team because they did it with young players, took their lumps, and even in the face of 0-26, never deviated from the plan. And so I think that's something both of them deserve a lot of credit for, even though I think the two of them hated each other, which is a story for another time. But um, let's just look at the draft from that first year. Their first overall draft choice is Leroy Selman, legend. Um, he's joined by his brother, Dewey. Other selections from that draft who ended up having a major impact on this game, but also over the season, Steve Wilson at center, Curtis Jordan in the secondary, George Ragsdale as a reserve running back receiver kick returner. Um, the expansion draft, where usually you get the dregs of football, you end up with almost a 10-year starter at right tackle in Dave Revis. Uh, you end up with uh, almost a 10-year starter at strong safety, our own Captain Crunch, Mark Cotney. Um, you have some interesting trades that bring in young, experienced talent like Mike Washington and Richard Batman Wood. You know, another pair of 10-year starters who played at a high level. You get waiver claims like Morris Owens. The Dolphins don't think Morris Owens has a future. He comes to Tampa and becomes their primary receiver. Isaac Hagen, Cedric Brown, Danny Reese. These were all players others gave up on. Um, and then in 77-78, you know, so you're still getting some good draft choices. You've got Ricky Bell and Doug Williams. But then you also get these smaller players like Jarris White, Wally Chambers, Randy Crowder, Bill Kohler. Uh, you know, we can question the wisdom of some of these trades. Like they overpaid tremendously for Wally Chambers, um, you know, giving up a number one draft choice for him. But in the short term, Chambers and Randy Crowder bring leadership and productivity to that defensive line rotation. The Bucks' defense never really wears down because if you have to take Selman and Kohler off the field, you just pop in a former defensive player of the year in Wally Chambers and another solid player in Randy Crowder. So this was a very smartly built franchise. And once again, I don't know that McKay and Ron Wolf ever really got the proper credit for that. Now the 1979 Bucks offense was no juggernaut. Coach John McKay had a reputation for running the ball most of the time and passing only when really necessary, leading to Doug Williams often only dropping back on third and ten. Teams only occasionally went to five defensive backs and not once in this game did the Bucks use a three receiver set. In the first quarter, the Bucks were facing third and ten from their own 30 when this happened. Mara Sorens is wide right, Isaac Hagen's wide left, Giles on the right side. Brzezinski trying to get in, and the pass is picked off by Jim Youngblood, and he's off to the races. This pass was as bad as anything Jameis Winston ever threw. Doug just telegraphed the pass in the right flat to Ricky Bell, and Jim Youngblood stepped in front to return it 31 yards for the score. Frank Corral's extra point was blocked by Leroy Selman, and the Rams were ahead 6-0. The second quarter was where all the Buccaneer scoring happened. Defensive tackle Bill Collar had recovered a Lawrence McCutcheon fumble just before the end of the first period. So it is first and ten on the Ram 15-yard line. Bell and Eckwood 
Morris Owens in a slot left inside Larry Mucker. Williams getting some heat, throwing Mucker, touchdown! Williams showed the power and strength of his arm right there because he was, Mucker was covered and he just threw that ball like Johnny Bench thrown into second base. Larry Mucker and Doug Williams combined for a 15-yard touchdown. Larry Mucker, not a receiver many Buck fans will know much about. Well, Kirk Gowdy made him a cult hero in 1979 by giving him the nickname Six or Nothing Mucker uh, because out of the 14 receptions Mucker had on the year, five of them were for touchdowns. Um, none of them were bigger than the one that he would have against Detroit in the Silver Dome, the game winner later in the season. Um, but he was a bit of a security blanket uh, for Williams in a way. Um, he was just seemed to be there for big receptions when Williams needed most. He was he was not a fast receiver, um, but he seemed to be able to get open. Uh, ninth round draft choice out of Arizona State, so that. The 1979 Buccaneers had like a, the corner on the Arizona State wide receiver market uh, because Morris Owens was also from uh, Arizona State. Owens was a self-described billiards fanatic. I found a fun article in which he talked about how he loved to hustle people back in his hometown in California. Um, but he also seemed to have a very hard time with self-discipline, especially getting to the team bus on time. He was... Uh, Abe Gibron's pain in the ass, uh, the, the former defensive coordinator, um, just he was in charge of getting people to the bus on time, and he, Mucker would just drive him crazy. As a matter of fact, on the day of the Detroit game, when he caught the game-winning touchdown, he had to get himself to the uh, stadium himself because Gibron finally had it, and the buses pulled away without Larry Mucker. Um, this is his apex uh, this season in 1979. This was the most catches that Mucker had, uh, the only touchdowns he had. Um, it soured quickly for him the next year. In 1980, he only caught two passes and was unceremoniously cut right after a loss to the Houston uh, Oilers because John McKay made an example out of him. Mucker had a couple of uh, procedure penalties that played a role in the Bucks losing uh, by six points. So, um, Mucker was a solid, if unspectacular, receiver who, you know, maybe if he had a better alarm clock, might have been able to hang around with the Bucks for a little bit longer. I mean, I, I remember the late A. Gibron. He was larger than life in, in many in many forms. I sat and uh, watched some practice with him at one Buck place, and he was just a lovely man. But anyone who's seen any clips of the expansion Bucks, who's seen A. Gibron running up and down the field, and I use running in inverted commas, he was a wonderful defensive. He, he was a wonderful defensive uh, coordinator and a real life and soul of, of that team. I think he was a former head coach of the Bears before that. Um, but yeah, a wonderful man. But I, if he told me to get up on time, I would have got up on time. So Irish kicker Neil O'Donnelly, you made the extra point, and the Bucks were ahead seven six. Later in the second quarter, an eighty-four yard drive was kept alive by some truly insane Ram personal foul penalties leading the Bucks having a third and one from the Ram five-yard line. It's the second man, all right. Ricky Bell, touchdown. That's what it was. And the block, that's what it was. And a good block it was by Johnny Davis, who just took Larry Brooks right out of there. So just how important was Ricky Bell to this offense? 
Well, he was important in many, many ways. Uh, first off, uh, for the first time in franchise history, Ricky Bell made a play fake, something the defense had to respect, and that took a lot of pressure off of Doug Williams. Um, also, his personal story, uh, his first two seasons in Tampa, he was beset by injuries, and there's a lot of pressure building on Bell and also on John McKay uh, to validate the fact that the Buccaneers took Bell first overall rather than Tony Dorsett in 1977. And um, also, in 1978, the Bucks have the opportunity to draft Earl Campbell, but they elect to stand with rookie Bell, and that causes some fans to question it. Um, what's interesting is that in 1979, these first few weeks, Bell is actually outrushed by Jerry Eckwood in several of the games, the rookie out of Arkansas. But what you can see is when you compare video of Bell in 77 and 78 to Bell in 79, is you see a running back who is less tentative and is running with more authority than ever before. And he's trusting that he can outrun the defense or he's trusting that if the hole is not there, I can break some tackles if I just keep my legs churning, which is exactly what we see on that uh, on this touchdown run. Uh, Johnny Davis does a great job of blocking Hacksaw Reynolds, but there's still a lot of traffic in that hole, and um, Bell just kind of plows through it like Godzilla uh, through the Japanese army. He's just stomping his way into the end zone. I think what's quite interesting is that Ricky Bell didn't line up as the tailback the whole time. So I think with you know when James Wilder was rushing the, for the Bucks in the eighties, it was all Wilder behind Adger Armstrong. And these days, you know, fans are used to just seeing one back behind there. Bell and Eckwood lined up in the I formation, and Bell was often the fullback. You know, most of the time in this game, he was lined up in front of Jerry Eckwood there to block. And in fact, Eckwood had twenty-two carries to Bell's eighteen in this game. And I think that's one of the things that really endeared Ricky Bell to his teammates. It's what Leroy Selman referred to as his quiet leadership. Um, Bell wasn't really a vocal guy, um, but he was willing to play fullback and to block. He, he, he was willing to put his face mask into a linebacker's chest, uh, just as willing as he was to then run up the middle if he had to. Um, and this speaks a lot to Ricky Bell's character. He's a number one draft choice. He's a product of the University of Southern California who was recruited by John McKay. So you very easily could have had this prima donna who was like, well, I'm really close to the coach. I don't have to do this type of stuff. But he, he doesn't do that. He is a leader by example. Uh, Leroy Selman mentioned that practices were just brutally physical but in a good way, and that was because of Ricky Bell. Um, Bell would not um, just run to the hole and then toss the ball back to the quarterback and line up for another practice play. He took every run to the end zone, no matter where they were on the field. If it was goal line or if it was back at their own 20, he would sprint all the way. He would challenge his teammates to keep up with him. He challenged his linemen to hold their blocks. He challenged his receivers to run with him because he's you know his belief was you know in a game there's a chance the cornerback could have an angle on me I want Isaac Higgins practicing to run out here to catch this guy I want Jarris White to try and catch me before I get across the goal line 
up, up here we have this expression in the steel area about uh, iron sharpens iron, and that was embodied by Ricky Bell in practice. He, I think that the number one ranking for that defense should be credited a little bit to the way they had to practice, and they had to practice that way because Ricky Bell was not going to let anybody take a down off. And I just, you know, that's the reason I put him on the cover of my book. You know, he may have not been the best running back. He was not Dorsett. He was not Campbell. But he was the running back the Bucks needed at that time. The Rams were now really beginning to struggle against the Tampa defense. And Pat Hayden's final stats of 13 of 27 for just 64 yards said it all. On one drive, Cedric Brown dropped a certain interception in the end zone and then got one on the very next play only for it to be called back for an offside penalty against Leroy Selman. Frank Corral would then miss a 47-yard field goal so badly you think Roberto Aguayo had attempted it. The expected rain had arrived now by the final two minutes of the half, but a 25-yard pass from Williams to Eckwood took the Bucks down to the Ram 29-yard line, where they finally connected on a play they'd been going for all day. Johnny Davis, a blocking back, is in there and staying in to block. And Williams going for the end zone. He's got Giles, the tight end for the touchdown. So just how did Jimmy Giles become a Buccaneer? Well, what's fascinating about that is, like, many Buccaneer fans probably don't realize Jimmy Giles played one full season for the Houston Oilers um, and started for them. You know, the Bum Phillips, Love You Blue Oilers. Uh, he caught 17 passes and even started the season opener, but eventually he lost the job to Mike Barber, who went on to have a pretty solid NFL career himself. So um, the Oilers really want Earl Campbell. Earl Campbell is an amazing running back from the University of Texas. He's the Tyler Rose from Tyler, Texas. He is a folk hero in Texas. And so the Oilers just really want him on their team, and they're willing to pay a premium to get him. And so the Buccaneers have the number one overall draft choice again. The Oilers trade a bevy of draft choices, and they send uh, Jimmy Giles along as a sweetener. Um, Tampa Bay got several picks, uh, and they used those very well. Uh, one of the draft picks is on a championship-winning quarterback, uh, Chuck Fusina. Uh, I am reading from the wrong call. <laughs> I apologize. Doug Williams. I mean, Fusina was the best quarterback in the United States Football League, but uh, Williams and Giles become synonymous uh, with this trade. Uh, so while some fans may have been disappointed at the time to miss out on Earl Campbell, uh, getting a franchise quarterback and a Pro Bowl tight end is not a bad deal. Um, and Giles pays dividends right away. Um, what I loved from watching this is realizing that Giles is an anomaly at this time. Tight ends are not really receiving targets. Mike Ditka and John Mackey were the exceptions um, they were actually weapons. Uh, Jimmy Giles can block, but he can also run the post pattern better than just about anybody in the NFL. And his touchdown in this game is just another one of those beautiful post patterns where he splits the defense and he's got safeties trailing him like puppy dogs on a freeway. Um, he brings that element of size and speed that is not in the NFL at this time, other than maybe Mackey. Um, 
Kellen Winslow will go on to become the prototypical tight end the next year. But, you know, Jimmy Giles is that that missing link, that, that cross between tight ends just being an extra blocker and now tight ends becoming the ultimate offensive weapon. And, of course, um, what everybody needs to remember is his last touchdown reception was legendary. And, Paul, you were there for that one. Yes, I was. And it wasn't in Tampa Stadium. And it wasn't in America. It was outside Wembley Stadium in October 2011. And yeah, I am digressing a little here. We had a touch football game against a Bears fan club. And we had someone called Brad Johnson playing at quarterback. And Jimmy lined up to the outside and didn't really run a pattern. He sort of sort of stood there and caught it. Um, I think they were so shocked by the fact that I was playing running back and Sky TV's presenter Neil Reynolds was playing wide receiver on the other side. So yeah, Jimmy Giles' last touchdown pass was at Wembley Stadium in London from a Super Bowl winning quarterback called Brad Johnson. The second half saw the Rams trailing 21-6 and the Buccaneer defence took over. Aiden under a rush from Chambers, a screen to McCutcheon, and it's the Batman, Richard Wood, who gets him again. Richard Wood is the number one buck tackler. Remarkable young ball player, five years out of USC. The Rams had nine drives in the second half. Five ended in punts, one on downs, and the other three on turnovers. Hayden was replaced by Vince Ferragamo at quarterback, and his first play behind centre did not go well. And Ferragamo's first play of the day, he's eaten up and fumbled, but he fell on his own ball. It was Leroy Selman who sacked him as he ran over John Williams. And then midway through the fourth quarter, another bad moment for Ferragamo. Chambers slips and he can't get in. Ferragamo going deep. And it is intercepted by Jarris White. And White is down. They're going to rule that he's down at the 42-yard line, I thought. But he is still scrambling. Jarris White and Preston Denard pulled him down at the 18. So a player called White, wearing 45, had a pick for the Bucks. Jarris White here in 1979. Devin White in the Super Bowl. The more things change, the more they stay the same. With all the Ram punts, the busiest man on the field was punt returner Danny Reese. He never saw a punt he didn't want to return. During 1979, he returned 57 punts with just one fair catch. And in fact, during his five-year Buccaneer career, he returned 222 punts with just seven fair catches. To put that into perspective, last season, Jordan Mickens had 16 punt returns and 12 fair catches. Clark will be kicking from his 35. Danny Reese is deep on the Tampa 10. A bad snap, but he got it away. It is handled by Tony Davis at the 30, and he'll be wrestled to the ground and buried back at the 25, fumbling long after the whistle. Danny, Tony Davis showed me something there. Good judgment. That ball would have bounced and probably gone dead about in the five-yard line. One of the most popular players with the fans from the 1979 team was running back and special teams demon Tony Davis. He played three seasons with the Bucks and now lives in Colorado with his wife Laurie. He's been a big supporter of BuckPower.com over the years and was happy to talk about being part of the first Tampa Bay playoff team. Many Buck fans will remember you for the nickname Tough Tony. 
I got the nickname from Riders in Nebraska, and I didn't like it because I, I took too many extra hits for being called that. So that, that, that wasn't that, that was something I tried to correct from the Riders, but never got done. How did you feel about being traded to the Bucks, who had a seven and thirty-seven record at the time you arrived? In '79, uh, the NFL was a different kind of uh, operating differently then. I had just finished putting the deck on the back of my house up in, uh, in Cincinnati. The day I get done with it, it's in May, I get a phone call. I pick up the phone call. The lady says, "Tony, this is Iggy." I'm the secretary with for, for Paul Brown, who just traded you the Tampa Bay Bucks. Who call this name? Check it out. That was that. And that. That was the extent of my knowledge of it before that. And so I thought, wow, I'm going to get traded to Tampa. Florida's kind of, you know, that's kind of nice, maybe. But they haven't won very many games. I have some friends on the teams, too, you know. So I thought, well, Let's get the guy there. I went down there. The thing that surprised me most of all at first was I took on the practice field um, with all the other players, and after a week, I'm going, Holy cow, there's a ton of talent on this team. I couldn't believe how much talent there was on this team. Of course, you had Leroy Selman, you had Wally Chambers, you had David Lewis, which is Batman Wood on defense. Defense was, you know, unbelievable. And, and so it was, it was all about whether we could produce an offense or not. And uh, then I spent the first three weeks with Doug Williams and said that there's something special here. This guy, was, this guy wasn't just ordinary, he was special. What was John McKay like as a coach and a person? Co- coach was uh, aloof. He was, uh, could, could be very difficult on people, including assistant coaches. Could be very difficult on, on players. Uh, would would not hesitate to jump down your throat. Um, I've, I've seen him threaten to cut guys on the field. Never never saw him do it, but he threatened them a few times. But uh, besides that, he was a extreme team oriented. CEO. He understood that his success depends on what you could do with others. And uh, and that way he was he was uh, very instrumental in how that team was put together by his third year. The turnaround to get the Bucks to four and zero was quite dramatic. What was it like in the locker room after the game? I remember the offensive linemen were just ecstatic about being winners. We're going to be winners. We're going to be winners. And finally, hit them right there. And, and uh, but you know, this, this whole that, that whole turnaround was almost exclusively Doug Williams oriented, in my opinion, from an offensive perspective. You know, your quarterbacks, your quarterbacks, the go-to guy. If you don't have a great quarterback in the league, you are you're not going to do well, or you're going to struggle to do well. Doug, Doug was. The, best player I ever played with, him and Leroy. Are you still in touch with many of your former teammates from that 1979 team? A lot of, a lot of, a lot of uh, former Bucks. Danny Nafziger, who was a great special teams player and linebacker. Danny Reese, Doug, Jim Bogdanovich, Dave Revis, Curtis Jordan, 
down the line it goes. So what is Tony Davis doing now? Well, we retired right now, and uh, retired in 2020, and uh, spent time with Laurie, and uh, just uh, enjoy what I'm doing. I'm playing a lot of golf, Paul. I'm playing a lot of golf. The fourth quarter wound down with the Bucks just running their favourite student body left play interspersed with full butt dives up the middle and the clock ran out with the 21-6 scoreline still intact. This was payback for the 26-23 defeat in 1978 that had seen Rams defensive end and future TV detective Fred Dreyer break Doug Williams' jaw that put him out for the second half of that season. And then the following week, the Sports Illustrated made the Buccaneers famous. And Dewey Silman had a nice pass breakup, I believe, in the second quarter. Um, it was a third down attempt by the uh, Rams near midfield. Um, Pat Hayden was under pressure, as he was most of the day, and he tried an outlet pass to Lawrence McCutcheon. And Dewey Selman was there to not only knock the pass away, but play piggyback on Lawrence McCutcheon. And that's the great frozen snapshot. Uh, on that cover of Sports Illustrated is Dewey Selman on top of uh, McCutcheon's back, forcing him to the ground as the ball bounces away. And there's the one of the tunnels at Tampa Stadium behind him. I think you can look out and see Dale Mabry um, in the background. It's even here 42 years later, that might be one of the most iconic images in the history of the franchise. I mean, this was their second Sports Illustrated cover. But this was the first that was really a compliment. I think it's quite amazing that Leroy and Dewey Selman were both selected in the same draft by the same team because they were born 11 months apart, so they were in the same year at Oklahoma. And the only other possible example I can think of was the Sedin twins who were drafted in 1999 by the Vancouver Canucks. There's been a lot of famous brother combinations in the NFL, but I, I can't think of any other drafts. Um, I do recall uh, one of the favorites up here in Ohio is the Columbus Panhandles, one of the original NFL teams. This is well before the draft. They had seven brothers on on their roster, the Nesser brothers, um, because that was they all worked for the railroad company, and the railroad company sponsored the football team. So um, I don't know that we'll ever get seven on one team again, but I can certainly say I don't know that you'll ever see a number one and number two draft choice from the same family like the Salvins were. The Bucks would go on to beat Chicago the following week for a 5-0 start, one match by the 1997 squad. They would end the season at 10-6, and and after a memorable win over the Eagles in a divisional round, would face the same Ram teams for a trip to the Super Bowl. That one didn't quite go so well, but the 1979 Rams never scored a touchdown against the Buccaneer defence. So one of the players who got mentioned in the commentary in that game was Charlie Hanna. He had quite an interesting story with the Bucks. Hanna's a defensive man playing offence, and he just tried to block him low, and... Jack ran around him. How tough is it, George, to convert a defensive lineman to the offense? You know, Vinny, that's something I always wanted to do when I was coaching. I wanted a, a defensive lineman playing in our offensive line to give us some toughness and leadership because uh, that's it's just the opposite. On offense, it's poise, calmness. On defense, it's fight and fury. And this is what Hannah's doing. He doesn't have techniques. He'll hold, he'll do anything to get his job done. 
Yeah, I mean, he was a draft choice, uh, another one of the draft choice that worked, once again, giving uh, giving the front office credit. He was uh, uh, drafted out of Alabama in 1977, and his older brother uh, was also a Hall of Famer, John Hanna, uh, the uh, offensive lineman for the New England Patriots for many years. Now, Charlie didn't come out of the gate strong. He's injured for part of 1977, uh, but he did start all... Uh, he started 14 games in 1978 and actually had a pretty solid season. He had four and a half sacks, and he shows that he's got athleticism and some size. You know, he's a good defensive lineman, but John McKay is faced with a dilemma going into the 1979 season. His starting right tackle, uh, Daryl Carlton, is coming off of a knee injury and is questionable, and there's not a lot of depth on the offensive line. So uh, McKay looks and sees that he's got this really athletic defensive player in Charlie Hanna, whose brother is a great guard. And I don't know, maybe he thought just through uh, some kind of osmosis, some of John's talent would seep into his younger brother. So he switches Charlie from uh, defensive line to offensive tackle. And he tells Tiger Bill Johnson, you know, this is your guy, get him ready. Um, he has one training camp in which to do this, and Charlie Hanna has a very good season at right tackle. He starts all 16 games. Um, he's got a relatively inexperienced quarterback to try and protect. He's got an overall number one draft choice at halfback that he wants to try and open goals for, and, and he does it. And he does it in a very raw fashion. You know, you played the George Allen clip about how he'll do anything legal or illegal to get the job done. Um, but he goes on to have a very solid career. And uh, he's eventually traded to the Raiders. And in one of those, you know, just kind of ironic moments, he wins a Super Bowl with the Raiders at Tampa Stadium. Um, and like many Buccaneers, and once he retires... He comes back to Tampa, and uh, from what I understand, he's in construction, which is something that you would expect a building block uh, like Charlie Hanna to have gotten into. And um, I know he's a very integral part of the community. He's a, he's a good businessman and philanthropist, and I think one of uh, Buck Power's favorites as far as the alumni events go. Yes, he was. I was very fortunate that in 2009, um, when Leroy Selma was inducted into the Ring of Honor, he had a dinner at One Buck Place, which I got invited to. There were no media there. It was just, I looked round and there were sort of 30 former players and coaches and I'm sitting there. And I'm on the offensive table. I'm sitting there with people like Dave Green was there and Charlie Hanna and Steve Wilson and Dave Revis. And Charlie was the life and soul of that table. There was Wayne Fonts telling stories on the other side for the defence and Charlie was telling some fantastic stories about the offence, most of which I definitely can't repeat on any podcast. So elsewhere around the NFL in week four, Archie Manning, who apparently had a couple of sons who played in the NFL, he passed for 355 yards as the Saints beat the 49ers. Don Strzok led Miami to a home win over Chicago and the Cleveland Browns went to 4-0 as they stomped all over Dallas on Monday night despite Roger Storbach's 303 yards. A nine-year-old Dennis Crawford must have been so traumatic at seeing Storbach get beaten like that. Every other Dennis would not have been allowed to stay up that late. Every other NFL team was happy though because fans supported their own team and whoever was playing Dallas. Back in Tampa, John McKay was so happy about his team's performance. 
We play defense about as well as we can play defense today. And we played about as good in the second quarter as we can play football. There's nothing like John McKay quotes after a game. Our offense actually scored all 27 points, he said. As long as we are healthy, I think we can play with most people. I don't see anybody we play that I know will beat us. Ricky Bell was quick to quote as well. It was great blocking. The offense really played well together today. We're finally breaking through into the sunshine and this game should give us the respect that we deserve. We got pretty conservative with the rain in the second half, but it was better to do that than lose the ball game. So Dennis, this was a really important game for the Bucks turning the corner in their history, wasn't it? It was. This, this game definitely stopped the jokes for a brief time. Um, people who still associated the Buccaneers with 0-26 or um, those lazy reporters who, once they get a narrative, never want to give up that easy, cheap narrative, well, now they have to change their story, storytelling style uh, and are forced to recognize that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are no longer a punchline. As the weeks go by, uh, you will actually see less emphasis placed on John McKay's quips and more is placed on the development of Doug Williams and the development of Ricky Bell and the astonishing season that Leroy Selman has that culminates with his uh, designation as NFL Defensive Player of the Year. Because um, you have to remember, once again, the Bucks' 3-0 start was viewed with a very cynical eye because of the poor record of their opponents, but not just beating, but physically dominating an NFL elite team um, changes everything. Now they're 4-0, and and I think the fact that they then next week don't have a letdown uh, speaks volumes for the amount of confidence they get out of this game, because they're trailing at Chicago, and maybe the old Bucks figure out a way to lose that game, but instead they drive down and Doug Williams hits Hagens for the game-winning touchdown on the road in the division. Um, it's hard to nitpick uh, that back-to-back uh, games. And to a man, uh, the Bucks know that they beat a legitimate title contender, and also so many of these players, in addition to McKay, have a Southern California connection that beating the Rams and knowing that this game is being broadcast back to their former high school and college teammates, they could, they could pop their chest out a little bit more uh, for having done that. I also think you get a reservoir of confidence that lasts throughout the season because there are some bad choppy waters coming ahead. They're going to finally lose a game. They're going to get blown out, inexplicably blown out at home by New Orleans. They're going to have that soul-crushing three-game losing streak towards the end of the season. And I I think that they can look back at this performance against the Rams and realize that if we just keep doing what we're doing, we're going to finally win. And I think that's what helps them overcome the losing streak, to beat the Chiefs, beat the Eagles, and then, well, quite frankly, almost beat the Rams even without Williams and Salmon in that championship game. How to sing happy birthday down here to John McKay and the Buccaneers. Well, for the Rams, a good ball club having a bad day against a very good defense. It's a great win for the entire Tampa Bay organization. There it is. Hugh Culverhouse, the community, they've suffered. They beat, they beat a playoff team, and they beat them decisively. And for that man, John McKay.
the greatest victory without a doubt in his professional career one of the biggest in his all-time career Pat Hayden whom he had at SC first to come over to shake his hands and Danny Rizek then Dr. Bob Curl and they know how important it was to John and to Corky and the kids it's been painful McKay has been eaten up down here the Wolves took a lot of holes in him when they lost 26 in a row but they're coming now and they are four and oh and the Rams are two and two and you know Benny they dominated this ball game they dominated this ball game the only touchdown the Rams got was a an interception by Youngblood Ben Scully for George Allen the NFL on CBS is a presentation of CBS Sports and there we have the first episode of the buckpower.com podcast a memorable Buccaneer win from 1979 my special thanks to my guests, Tony Davis and Dennis Crawford, and to Al Needham and TJ Reeves for all their advice and guidance on getting this project off the ground. So Dennis, where can people read more of your work? Well, uh, if you have an interest in the 1979 Buccaneers, uh, while, while McKay's Men is out of print now, because it's been quite a while since I've written it, I know that you know through Amazon, you can go out there and get copies. Um, same thing uh, with Hugh Culver House, in the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It's a much more interesting book than the title might imply for those of you who lived through the Culver House era. Um, uh, that's available on Amazon, but also through McFarland Publishing. And then the book I just did might be of interest to some of your listeners. Uh, those old enough to remember the Tampa Bay Bandits of the United States Football League, I just did a biography of uh, Johnny F. Bassett, who owned that team and who famously once threatened to punch Donald Trump in the face. Uh, Dennis, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on this podcast. You've been great. Enjoy Huey Lewis in the news. <laughs> you have been great also. Enjoy Spandau Ballet. Before we finish this first episode, a somewhat sad note. Mark Cook, long-time Buccaneer writer and even more long-term Buccaneer fan, passed away on August the 12th. He was a friend for many years and was going to be heavily involved in future episodes of this podcast. It is incredibly poignant that his final game covering and watching the Buccaneers was the Super Bowl victory. Come game day and the roar of the crowd, he will be watching now from above. Rest in peace, Mark. You were a great friend and a great writer, and you will be sorely missed. Please rate and review this podcast wherever you find it, and tell any other Buccaneer fans you know about it too. You can contact me, Paul Buckpower Stewart, on Facebook or Twitter, or via buckpower.com, where you will also find daily updates on both the 2021 Buccaneers and everything that has happened on that day in franchise history. And remember, if you have a question about the Bucks, don't Google it, Buckpower it.